Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to the Henry Ford Patient Experience Podcast. Today you're in for a real treat as I sit down with the godfather of emergency medicine at Henry Ford, Dr. Gerard Martin. I managed to catch up with him one week into his retirement after 40 years of service uh, to our department, our hospital, and our community. And we talk about his origin story, his career arc, and of course his thoughts on patient experience and bringing humor to the bedside. It is not to be missed. Up front, I want to apologize. I had some technical difficulties, mainly on my end when I was talking. The good news, of course, though, is that you're here to hear what Dr. Martin has to say, and I managed to edit out most of my voice to limit some of the technical difficulties we were having. But thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Well, hey, everybody. This is Justin Bright with the Henry Ford Patient Experience Podcast. This is episode two, uh, and I hope you liked what you heard on the first. And I am incredibly privileged and honored to share our next guest with you. Um, He's a former chairman of our department, frankly, one of the godfathers of Henry Ford Emergency Medicine. Newly into retirement, I had to make sure I caught him before he went down to the BVI and couldn't share any information with us. None other than the illustrious... Gerard Martin, thank you for joining us today, Gerard. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Um, how's retirement treating you? Uh, it's been short. You know, it's only been a week or so, but it's good. It's very yeah. good. And for those who, who haven't been around as long as you have, maybe haven't gotten to know you as, as long or as well as some others, how long have you been with Henry Ford? I came to Henry Ford in 1980, July, to do my uh, emergency medicine residency. And where did you come to us from? Were you born and raised here in Detroit? No, I'm originally from New York. I grew up on Long Island outside New York City. My dad worked in the city all his uh, life. And then I was in Notre Dame for undergrad. And then I never went back to New York after that. I went to St. Louis University for medical school and then here to Henry Ford. And how did you come to find Henry Ford? Uh, (laughs) That's a good story. My uh, roommate in college was Stephen Tomlanovich, brother of Michael Tomlanovich, the original chairman of the department. So um, I knew I wanted to go into emergency medicine. Mike was here. I did a rotation at Henry Ford. I actually really wanted to go to Hennepin County in Minneapolis, but um, I didn't get in there and I got Henry Ford. So there's no way I was going to turn it down. So I ended up at Henry Ford and uh, except for a short period of time. I've been here ever since. Yeah, their loss was definitely our gain. So what was what was life at Henry Ford like back in 1980? Uh, it was very different. Uh, residency program worked. You did a one-year rotating internship that you could do anywhere, and then you came second and third year as a resident in emergency medicine. So I did a flexible internship uh, at Henry Ford and then stayed on. The department was uh, considerably smaller. It was over in the old M unit. Um, I believe it was really um, before that it was uh, labor and delivery. And uh, it was not the greatest setup, but you know, we made it work and uh, it was an interesting situation. Sounds like it. Now, you had mentioned that for a brief period, you you left Henry Ford. When was that and where'd you go? Uh, I never planned on staying in uh, 
in Detroit. I came here to train and then I was, and uh, I, I got married to a fellow classmate in, uh, at St. Louis U. And back then they didn't have couples match. They didn't have any of that stuff. So my wife went to Northwestern to do internal medicine, but she decided she didn't really want to do internal medicine. She wanted to do derm. So our plan was I would finish emergency medicine. She would finish internal medicine. And then we would go wherever she wanted to go for dermatology. But she got so frustrated with internal medicine that on a, on a lark, she applied to Henry Ford for dermatology. And at that, at that time, and still, uh, Henry Ford has one of the most competitive dermatology programs in the country. And frankly, my wife didn't think she was going to get in, but, and, and that was in my, so she started derm when I was a third year resident and that led us to two more years in Detroit. So then I, you know, continued to work at Henry Ford and I did some research and then two years led to three years and then four years. And then finally, um, in 92, I think it was, we decided that if we don't leave now, we're never going to leave. And, uh, so we pulled up roots and we moved to the uh, Boston area. When did you become chairman of our department? Um, I became chairman in 2007, I think it was. And what was that like? What did you, what did you get or what did you learn by being a chairman that you didn't necessarily realize while you were just one, one of the docs working in the ED itself? Well, um, I never really aspired to be the, cha- the chairman. I was perfectly happy doing all the things that I did. And I felt like I had a variety of different careers within my career. And uh, the chairman being chairman was an eye-opening experience. Um, You have to be very selfless to be a chairman because it's not about you. It's about the department. And I think to be effective as a chairman, you have to do whatever it takes. um, Take care of your, staff docs take care of the staff nurses take care of everybody in the department including the patients and you have to um you have to really support them and be there for them and do whatever needs to be done for everybody else and it, you really become second and i think that's really one of the important characteristics of of great leaders is they they are selfless and it's not about them it's about everybody else Um, so I I do want to transition a little bit more into kind of the purpose of this podcast, which is the patient experience and really the yin and the yang of that is the physician experience. And one of the things that I find most interesting is, um, that you have a residency graduation award named after you calling called the healing with a smile award that, that is meant to, uh, award or recognize the resident who, uh, uses humor as medicine or, you know, has some of the best rapport and communication with their patients. So how did that award come about? And um, we can start there and then kind of delve a little bit more into the, into your own practice. Um, um, Taher came up with that idea um, probably years ago, five years ago. I'm not even sure. He wanted to recognize uh, some of the historical uh, personalities in the department. So he came up with that award. At that time, I had done um, 
I had been doing uh, some lectures about humor and the importance of humor in, uh, you know, healthcare environment and taking care of patients. And also, um, yeah, so that's how it came about. Gotcha. And so, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about that. I, how, how do you use humor on a regular basis in, in taking care of patients? You're widely recognized as somebody who's got a great rapport with their patients and a great attitude. Um, and I, I'd like to get more into well, that. Well, I, um, I think there's a lot of things that go into that. One is being uh, older and comfortable with um, knowing what's going on with the patients or at least how you're going to uh, approach the patients. I think that uh, it can work for younger physicians, especially residents, but you just got to be careful. Um, I truly, um, I have patients, you know, some, some patients are difficult, but um, the majority, the vast majority of our patients are nice people, you know, from a totally different lifestyle or, you know, world that I am from in, in all cases. Mm-hmm. But um, I, you know, not judging them, just trying to get them and trying to understand about what they're living through um, enables you to approach them on on a personal level that is not uh, demeaning. Because humor, you got to be really careful with it because it doesn't it's it doesn't work on everybody. It's not meant for every circumstance. But um, if you can read the right people and use it properly, it can make a huge, a huge difference in their day and a huge difference in your day. When you come away after having a good laugh with a patient, the patient feels better. You feel better. You know, even though there's 50 patients in Cat 2 East, you know, it makes you feel mm-hmm. better. So um, what do I do? Um, well, it depends on what the patient's got, you know, if they're really sick, there's no time for humor. But one of the things that I do with almost all patients is you, I mean, I use the same jokes with everybody because most of them haven't seen me before. And then the ones sure. that have seen me before, like some of our frequent flyers, I mean, I've got a rapport with them that they know me. And so I don't have to use the same joke. So the first thing I say to the patient is how are you and how are you feeling? And most people, even when they're sick, will say, I'm good, doc, how are you? And then your retort is, you can't be that good or you wouldn't be here. So what's troubling you? And that leads right into your you know, history of present illness. So I think that, and you get a, usually get a little smile from that. And then a lot of times they'll ask, about me and I say you know who cares about me you know you're the person that's sick but then that starts into something with a little laugh too I think that um, it's really critical not to judge patients and just try to you know take them for what they are you're not there to judge them you're there to take care of them and do whatever you can to to comfort them Um, I like to sit on the bed I like to hold hands with patients I like to laugh with patients. And when I laugh, a lot of times, you know, I'm leaning right into them and, you know, we're sharing a laugh. COVID, you know, has, has really taken a lot of that away. And it's, 
you know, problematic. I think it'll come back eventually, but you know, right now is not the time to be hugging all your patients, but hopefully it'll come back. Right. Um, I, I like to see humor in the circumstances when we can. I like to laugh at myself when I, you know, make a slip up. Uh, I'm not afraid to, you know, tell the patient about it and, and laugh about it with them. So, um, I think that's it. Yeah, those are all wonderful points. And, and you actually bring up a, a lot of things that, that I've been thinking about a lot lately, too. Um, yesterday, I was working in a busy 2E shift, and it was the first time I actually sat down with a patient, like, on their bed since the pandemic started. And, and I noticed immediately that I felt good just sitting next to them and being able to talk to them and reassure them in a way that for the last couple of months right. I haven't been able to. Um, and I had also mentioned in my prior interview with uh, Chris Clark that I noticed that all the PPE is really obviously it covers your face. And it turns out my humor really relies on a lot of facial expressions to read my sarcasm and things like that. And now that that's blocked, I've realized a lot of my humor doesn't go over nearly as well as it was like saying in right. January and February. So I've had to, I've, I've had no, to I think that, to that. That's really important um, because, you know, the patient's got a, a mask on, you've got a mask on, you've got the face shield, they can't hear you. They see your smile or your, you know, frown or what, and it really makes it much more difficult. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times I, I successfully in the last couple of months, I found that it's best just to acknowledge it. Like it's basically like a third wheel right. with you in the room. And I think it's important to acknowledge um, the hazmat suit you have to wear or the riot shield and how scary that must be for the patient. But there are ways to make it humorous too. Um, and I've actually found with the name badges that we're wearing now, the stickers, like patients have really appreciated seeing who's hiding under all that yeah. PPE. No, so, I think you're right. Um, I think that's critical I, I think to that, acknowledge it and say, you know, this isn't going to be like it really is. And, and absolutely acknowledging it, it gives you somewhere to go from there. Yeah. If you don't acknowledge it, then you can't kind of move on from it. It's just kind of their exactly. What are some strategies you have for for establishing rapport with a patient in the first place. And, and you had mentioned, you know, sometimes patients are difficult to read. What kind of things do you find that you pick up on that let you know humor's available to you in the first place? Like this would be a good patient to inject some humor with versus, Hey, you know, it's probably not an awesome situation to do that. Here. <laughs> well, I think when they're really ill, when they're really ill, you know, they're having trouble breathing. I think, uh, you know, calm reassurance is really important. And then, you know, take care of the problem at hand. And then you can maybe, after you've established that rapport, that you've made them feel better, then you can maybe use a little humor. But definitely the, the sicker somebody really is, the, uh, the less humor becomes important at the onset. It can be very useful later to kind of allay their fear. But um, I think angry patients are... Uh, you can't use humor on angry patients until you can get beyond the anger because when uh, you do, and I have, it just makes them more angry. So if you, you know, been waiting for five hours to get seen and they feel like hell and you come in, um, they come back with, Oh, you think this is funny? You think it's funny? I've waited five hours. Sure. And then, and you, you've dug your hole deeper. Absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot of wonderful follow-up questions that 
all that brings up. And, and the first is you had mentioned the unhappy patient. I think one of the things that all physicians really struggle with is how do you best diffuse those situations uh, in an effective way? And again, I'm not talking about the violent combative patient. That's a totally different beast, but a patient who's got a legitimate reason to be upset about something. Um, what, what are some things that have worked for you over time in terms of letting that anger in um, and being able to move past it to get to the crux of what they actually need from a treatment um, standpoint? I think you just got to listen. You got to take it, let them, you know, beat you up and down and tell you all the bad and mm-hmm. then just let them go. So sometimes you have to cut them off, but most people will stop after an appropriate time and that kind of starts you fresh and then approach it very professionally, very quickly and uh, move on. From- and, you know, I can think of a few patients where we started past their anger and uh, we had great interactions um, that ended with smiles on both sides at the end. Yeah, very well said. And, you know, for, for the listeners, you're probably noticing a recurring trend from what uh, Dr. Clark had mentioned in the prior interview. And the important thing is listening, letting them get their emotion out without getting without us getting defensive or, or amping back up and kind of creating this vicious cycle. Um, and that's the only way that you're going to get past it. So very well said. Um, do you have any techniques or strategies in dealing with family members at all? Like oftentimes I find that while the patient is who we're taking care of, we're oftentimes needing to tend to the feelings, perceptions, expectations, et cetera, of the family member in the chair rather than the patient on the cot. Um, and I'm wondering in your wealth of experience, what you've noticed and picked up on and your well, strategies there. Um, I mean, a pretty standard strategy is make sure you acknowledge the of anybody else in the room. Try to dig into, you know, who they are and also, you know, how much can, with the patient, how much can I share with them? And uh, I think that helps a lot. The other thing that I do for everybody, for the patient, family, is I draw pictures. And uh, when I have somebody that has what I think may be biliary colic or cholecystitis or, you know, pancreatic problem, anything like that, I'm, I'm drawing the biliary tree, I'm drawing the stomach, common bile duct, all that stuff. And I, you know, run through what, what things look like and, you know, what could it be and what, what that means in, you know, for you and what's going on in your body. And I think that really helps a lot because we talk so fast, the patient just hears the first few words and then they glaze over and they're thinking, all sorts of other things, and they're not necessarily paying attention, or even if they were paying attention, they can't really understand what we tell them because we talk too fast and we're too medical. So uh, I think slowing things down and uh, spending time with the patients uh, really makes a big difference and drawing pictures. You, I've given away so many pictures of, you know, triple A's, coronary artery disease, biliary tree, stomach, all that stuff. So I think that makes a huge difference. Gerard, I got another question, which is there's some people in our group who are clearly far more extroverted than others. 
what advice would you have for people who are a little bit more introverted or wallflowers or maybe a little less comfortable communicating or using humor um, at the at the bedside? Do you have any strategies for them in terms of how to well, I think step that, out of that know, you comfort You got to be zone? who you are, and uh, and if if you and you see everything pretty seriously, like, I mean, that's fine, and <laughs> you know that's the way you are. You can't be funny if if you you really don't want to be funny and uh, so i think that's per- perfectly fine your patients you know they may not like you as much or they may like you more because you're not funny so we'll see one thing i wanted to mention was um as an attending i have a, you have a special privilege in that you don't have to do as much grunt work with the patients when you're staffing cases with the resident. So I get to spend time, more time, better quality time with the patients um, because I don't have to delve into all the little minutia. So I, you know, I get a story from the patient, I mean, from the resident that they, it's abdominal pain there thinking that it could be a gallbladder. So I examine my history and everything I do more on that than uh, going through everything else with the patient. And I think that really helps to develop more of a rapport and I've got more time to, to draw the pictures. Of course, when I'm seeing patients primarily, that makes a difference, but you know, it's still, it's still a uh, kind of the fun of being the attending. For sure. I mean, there's definitely times where I feel like I'm the mayor of two West or, you know, two East and I'm just kind of going around and making sure people are looking good. And the picture that the resident painted is what I'm actually seeing. And uh, that, you know, in fact that they're happy and comfortable with what's going on, but I do also think it short changes in terms of making it seem like if you're the primary provider that you're not able to do those things. And I find that I am, uh, and, and I would imagine you are as well, and others others can. It just it takes a concerted decision to do so, and honestly, I think it ends up saving time in the long run because you get more critical information that points you in the direction of what actually needs to be done, <clears throat> what their fear is. It prevents doorway complaints Absolutely. and having to come back into the room. So I think it, it saves time in the aggregate, and I don't want residents to feel like just because they're the primary provider that they don't have time for it. Uh, we realize, obviously, the time pressures you're, they're under, but um, anybody can do it at any time. You just have to make a concerted right. decision to right. ask some different questions. And another chairman-related question, but really delving into your overall time with Henry Ford, is how have you seen like the emphasis on patient experience change <laughs> over time? Okay, well... I like that well, there's laughter started, before this comment. This, um, this should be good. I mean, we always cared about the patients, but we didn't care experience. And uh, we tried to do the best we can. We had, you know, limited resources. We didn't have good enough staffing. And so everybody waited. When I, back in, I don't even know when it was, probably the early 90s, when you would come on shift on a Saturday night to work the midnight shift, there would be one person on midnights for cat, for cat one and cat two. We weren't quite as busy, but we were still seeing probably 70 or 80,000, maybe even more. And you were covering the whole ER. The ER was backed up, you know, six to eight hours. And you had to take care of the whole place. 
And what you did was you put out fires. You were a fireman. And uh, that was it. And if, if you were able to, on that midnight shift, see everybody by 7, had registered before midnight, that was considered success. So it was not... Kind of, yeah. kind of made me well, want to vomit terrible. my mouth a little bit. Absolutely terrible. We had a walkout rate. I started getting interested in this back in the uh, uh, early, uh, well, mid-90s, I guess it was. So I started looking at, uh, we got a computer system where we could actually figure out, you know, our walkout rate. And I started looking at our LWCS. And it was in the teens, 14, sometimes 15 wow. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that that many people walked out. And then we checked the data again and we rechecked it and we couldn't make it go away. So we decided, you know, it was time that we do something. And at that point, um, grants available through, uh, oh, I can't think of what it was. So, um, and then we had a really supportive administrator in the department and then the VP that was over us was really supportive of it. So we got together a work group and we started just banging on uh, the operations of the department. And we had this uh, program where we did something new, a new process change every week or at least every other week. So, you know, this week we're trying this and we're gonna see if it works and, if, and we'll look at the data and we'll, if that doesn't work, we're going to try something different. But it was, it was amazing. We made huge, huge changes. And we made big uh, improvements in our length of stay and big improvements in door-to-dock, all that sort of thing. Do you recall what some of the large-scale changes well, that were um, most effective? No, were? it was all the process changes. But I can tell you, uh, did you ever hear about Lose Weight Monday? Okay. Yeah, I was actually just about to bring that up. And I, you referred it to me as Trim the Fat Monday, if right. I recall. But yeah, Lose Weight Monday. Okay, so we Explain had that to the residents. What was that? Um, in the department. And, uh, you know, some of it was us. But a lot of it, we had done a lot of work in the department. So we had solved a lot of the throughput issues that we owned totally. But we couldn't solve a lot of the problems that were hospital-wide. So, you know, bed availability, consults, all that sort of thing. We couldn't really solve that. We tried to, and it was right when I became chief. You know, I would bring this up to all these meetings, and, you know, we got to do this. We got to have an ER disaster plan, and nobody was buying it at all. You know, they all talk a little bit about it, but when push comes to shove, nobody was going to make any any steps to improve things for us and so what we did is we <laughs> we went for a totally different approach and there was some work being done on queuing theory in uh in boston and there was a lot of emphasis really across the country on boarding and that sort of thing so we thought you know what if maybe instead of trying to eat the whole elephant and in that old wise man's tale what we would do is just try to fix one day. And Mondays, as now, 
or always the busiest day. So we thought, why don't we just attack Monday and see if we can fix Monday and maybe week. And if we can, we can fix Tuesday and Wednesday and, but we'll go for the hardest one first. So we started this program and I don't remember what year it was. It was around, you know, uh, probably 1990, I mean, 2008, maybe, or 2009. So we started a program we call Lose Weight, W-A-I-T, days. And we made buttons and we sent hundreds of buttons to everyone across the system. And we made a video that we uh, sent out uh, at the beginning of the year, you know, New Year's Day or the day after that talked about what the program was and uh, you know, why we were and how. And what we would do is every day, every Monday afternoon for a year, I would send out a, uh, a report to all leadership across the system, including the very top, all the way down to uh, unit managers. And it would have a story of what was happening on month, that particular day in the ER. And it would say how many people were waiting, how many people had you know, uh, waited for more than 24 hours they were in the ER. And it would be, um, it was a little bit sharp, purposely so. I would say, you know, we got Joe Blow is a 90 year old male with metastatic prostate cancer. He came to the ER Sunday morning instead of going to church and he's been in the ER all day and all night. And he's still here on Monday afternoon. You had dinner with your family, went to bed in your bed, got up and went to work. And Joe Blow is still in the ER. And so it was very personal. And uh, then on Tuesday morning, we would have a Monday mop-up report. And it would say, guess what? Joe Blow's still in the ER, still waiting for a bed. And then we, uh, mm. I would include pictures of patients when they, you know, it was all with their consent. I had recordings of patients that would say, this is ridiculous. This is, you know, we're not tre being treated like humans. And uh, it went, and it went to Nancy Schlichting, who was the head of the system at that time, tiny, um, a bunch of other very important people, and they got their attention. Believe me, the uh, I was called into many people's offices about it. Several people told me, "Look, you want to keep your job, you better stop doing this." But I was committed to doing it. I did it for a year, and it led to um, significant changes in the processes of how they admitted patients and uh, prioritized beds and other operations that made a big difference. Our length of stay, I can't remember what it was, but it, we lost two hours on our length of stay over that year, which is an incredible wow. amount. Because that's averaged over everybody. Yes, it is. Um, so, uh, <laughs> well, that's, I mean, a really incredible story. So thanks for sharing that. And as, as an aside, real quick, I want to get something on tape uh, just for the residents' education about Left Without Being Seen. 
uh, Dr. Martin alluded to left without being seen's of like 15 to 18 percent, which is astronomical. Um, traditionally, these days we're right around four percent. Industry standard is considered to be around two percent or under. If you end up taking a job one day with a private group of some sort that's providing ED services to a hospital and you're left without being seen as north of two percent, trust me, you're not going to hold that contract very long. And it also lends to the point of a lot of people think, well, if they left, it must not have been an emergency in the first place. And I think we all know that that's not true. We've definitely seen people who've left the waiting rooms at Grace or DRC, uh, um, receiving or, or whatever, where they clearly had medical problems. They just couldn't afford to wait three, four or five hours. Um, it has financial implications in regards to downstream revenue from tests ordered, people being admitted, et cetera. And obviously, as we're seeing now with our record low numbers, you need volume to support your healthcare system and you don't want people going to the shop down the street. Great. Well, Gerard, this has been wonderful. I I've appreciated your time before we go. Is there any other patient experience related things or really anything in general advice wise you'd have for the group, the residents, the PAs, whomever, uh, kind of as some parting shots uh, yes. before you go off I, into your blissful retirement. To be a physician to me is a, it's a privilege. You get to, uh, share the most intimate details of people's uh, lives. They take off their clothes for you so you can examine them. And uh, you need to treat that with the respect that it needs to be treat treated with, that it deserves. Um, and the profession is, uh, not everybody treats the profession with, uh, not everybody sees the profession like this or acts like they see the profession like this. But I think truly it is a, uh, it's, it, it's an unbelievable job you have. It may not always seem like that, but um, it's really important. And you have so much power over patients to make them better and to make them feel better. You may not be able to cure them, but you can certainly make them feel better. Um, so I, I think you just need to be aware of that. And when you're feeling down and, like you can't take care of another patient. You got to think about that and think about why you came into medicine. Try to see the humor in things and try to share the humor with your patients. And take care of patients the way that you would want your family to be taken care of. And if you're not sure if you should, you know, do a test or if the patient should go home or not, think, you know, if this was my mom, you know, would I feel good if I got a call that they were sending her home or would I feel like, you know what, you should have done this test. Well, if you, if you feel like you should be doing something more, if it was your mom, you better do it for that patient too. And I found that it's also a good approach with consultants that, you know, just like the patients, you don't know what the hell the consultant is going through. He may have 10 patients that are critically ill on the floor. He's gotten beaten up by his staff a few times. So you got to give them a little slack too. But when they don't want to do the right thing for the patient, I would often say to them, you know, would you think that's really the right thing to do? What if this was your brother? Would you be happy about that? And more often than not, they'll come around and they'll do the right thing if you give them a chance. But the bottom line is that you're the patient's advocate and you've got to advocate for your patients. That's your job. And all wonderful points. And actually leads me to one other question I really wanted to make, make a point of getting you on tape with, which is you've practiced for 40 years and with the overall kind of focus on physician wellness and burnout issues in our profession now, what elements of our job or what 
elements within you or decisions you've well, made think, allowed you to um, practice for as long as you have? I think you got to be able to compartmentalize. You got to not take work home. And if you have a tough day at work, don't bring it home to your family. You got to try to uh, talk it out with whoever you need to talk it out with. I was lucky in that I was married to uh, another physician. She was a dermatologist, kind of at the other end of the spectrum, who didn't always understand uh, what I was going through, but she always was ready to listen and uh, help me deal with it. Um, I think it's really important that uh, you've got to have other interests and you've got to compartmentalize those. I mean, you can't take work everywhere you go. You got to find something else to do with your time. Otherwise you'll get swallowed up by medicine. And you know, that doesn't have to be bad. Medicine is incredible. It's so exciting. There's so many interesting things to learn. So many challenges that it's easy to get swallowed up by it, but you got to draw that line somewhere. Having a family um, is a great distraction. Having some hobbies is a great distraction. Um, Working in an academic place like Henry Ford has been incredible for me because it allowed me to have different careers within my career. I was able to be an educator, especially um, in the middle of my career. That was my focus. I did a lot of research at the beginning of my career, which I never, ever thought I would get involved with. Then I got in operations and that was, you know, really important to me. And I did a lot of work with that. And now in the past five years, since I, um, stepped down as chairman, I just been enjoying taking care of patients. Um, and it, that can be a joy. What are the, the, the biggest parts of our job that brought you joy? Like we're, cause obviously it's important to have outside interests. So it's not all work all the time. Cause I strongly contend that the job will never love you back, but you also need to find joy in the workplace. So what are the, the elements that, that brought you the most gratification or joy um, and kept you getting out of bed right every day in the workplace for itself? Every patient. It's one of the beauty, beautiful things of uh, working at Henry Ford. You know, the homeless guy comes he, comes in having a STEMI. He gets the same treatment as the mayor. And, you know, that's, that's great. That's the way it should be. So doing the right thing all the time, um, treating everybody back, getting it back, and interacting with everybody, uh, you know, they talk about the Henry Ford family. And I mean, to me, it really has been a family, a lot of uh, good times and uh, a lot of fun at work, just having a good, um, a good experience with everybody. One of the most uh, gratifying things is watching residents who um, started out, they don't know anything. And then in three years, you feel like, you know, this guy could take care of my family, take care of me. I'm, I'm good with that. Um, that's probably the most important thing. Well, Gerard, thank you so much for your time. It's really awesome to hear all your advice um, and kind of your stories and experience along the way. Uh, I want to thank you for making the time for us and our team uh, to share your knowledge. But more importantly, thank you for your role in building an incredible emergency department and place to come to work so I can continue to have a job and our colleagues can continue to have a job and take care of our community for a really long time. So thank you so much. I wish you the absolute best in your retirement. And I know we all hope to see your face from time to time. 
And uh, everybody else, thank you for listening. I hope you liked what you heard. I apologize for some, some of the feedback and technical difficulties. I'll continue to work on it. And tune in next time for the next edition of the Henry Ford Patient Experience Podcast. So there you have it, folks. That was an awesome discussion with Dr. Martin. We wish him well in his retirement. I can't thank him enough for giving us the time and sharing his wisdom with us. For those who listened, thank you for sticking through some of the technical difficulties. I'm continuing to work on that. Uh, You'll notice in this podcast there's a leave a message function where you can tap on it and actually leave a recording that I can use in a future episode if you want to continue the discussion or if you want to leave a suggestion, particularly if it's anybody you want to hear from, hear their story. It can be resident, nurse, attending, tech, PA, anybody. Uh, Leave me a message and let's continue the conversation. I hope you're enjoying and uh, stay tuned for the next episode. Have a great day, guys.